What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome to Evidence Elevates. This podcast is brought to you by the Moving Forward Task Force of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA. The views or opinions expressed are those of the individual creators and do not necessarily represent the position of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I'm Parm Paget, a member of the Moving Forward Task Force and a clinician in a hospital-based outpatient neuroclinic. In this podcast, we will continue our discussion with educators. In a recent podcast, we spoke with Dorian Rose about competency-based education. We hope that you will listen to that podcast as it dovetails really well with this one. We are very excited to be talking with Wendy Romney. Wendy is an educator, a member of the board of the ANPT, and an author on the Moving Forward paper. I'm going to let Wendy provide more details about her day-to-day work and contributions at the Academy. So welcome, Wendy, and please introduce yourself. Welcome, everybody. I'm Wendy Romney. I My full-time job is I'm an assistant professor at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, and I've been teaching here for 12 years. And um, I am currently the director of practice for the Academy of Neurophysical Therapy, and I've served in this role for the past three years. And prior to that, I was lucky enough to be on the Knowledge Translation Task Force Uh, for the core set of outcome measures. And I've also been involved in the spinal cord uh, injury edge task force as well. Great. So lots of things and lots of different kind of areas within the academy. Yeah, very lucky. Yeah. Um, So we're, we're here today to mostly sort of talk about education and um, how your curriculum has changed over time. But before we get to that, give us a little bit of a roadmap of um, your foray into academia. Like, when did you graduate and kind of did you work clinically for a while and then transition? How did that go? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I graduated from Ithaca College with a master's. I did an entry-level master's in 2006, and then I stayed there and did a transitional doctorate. Um, And immediately after graduation, I worked in an acute rehab hospital for three years, and then I transitioned to outpatient neuro before going into full-time academia. So uh, I feel like in terms of seeing kind of the spectrum of patients, I was able to see the inpatient side and the outpatient side before um, entering into academia. Okay. And so how did your experience inform your teaching and your work at the academy? Yeah, sure. In terms of moving forward and uh, just where I was in my practice and this paper, you know, in practice, 
one of the things I noticed is that I first noticed is that we weren't really using outcome measures other than the FIM. And so that was something in my education that was very highly recommended. And we spent a lot of time doing outcome measures. And so I worked hard to try to get outcome measures implemented into the inpatient rehab setting as well as outpatient. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of PNF um, use, I hadn't really used PNF um, or NDT in my, in my clinical practice. And so then when you transitioned to academia, what was your experience there in terms of like how things were being taught? Kind of the first year, I was lucky to have a lot of nice mentors teaching me how to teach because as clinicians, we're not educated in how to teach. So um, I got a lot of great experience um, watching my mentors and um, learning from them and how to teach. But um, what I did notice is that sometimes there were things that we were doing in um, the classroom that I had never really seen in clinical practice. And so I felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect between how I practice personally and some of the techniques that, or the, the, the techniques that we were teaching. Mm -hmm. So has your curriculum changed over the 12 years that you've been there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, curriculum always changes, right? We're constantly looking to refine and make everything better. But um, when um, we started to work on the uh, moving forward paper as a president's perspective, because I was on the board um, at that time, it was a really nice opportunity to take a really deep dive into literature and see what was happening in um, comparing some of the studies that looked at NDT and PNF with, um, or the traditional techniques with current evidence-based practice principles, like um, more contemporary practice that looks at neuroplasticity. So um, that kind of was really eye-opening for me in so, that. Wait, I just want to go back a second. So were you teaching those principles and those techniques early on in your teaching career? Yeah, we were doing, we were having, we were having labs on uh, PNF and NDT in, in, you know, the scoop and load and rhythmic rotations. Yeah. So we were, we had a lot of the labs and I, you know, I co-taught them and I um, had to learn them along. I felt like in the beginning I was learning the techniques alongside with the students because I hadn't really done them in practice. Mm-hmm. You said your curriculum is kind of constantly changing. And so how did that change come about? So I think once I started to learn and go to CSM and meet other um, educators and researchers, you know, I would always try to bring information back from CSM and push it into the curriculum. So I think in the beginning, it was a lot of pushing into the curriculum and trying to figure out ways to add something here or there. Um, with really not removal of anything. And so eventually like your curriculum just gets so packed, you're right. stuffing more and more stuff in and you have to ask yourself like, what are the students actually learning at this point and where can we make some cuts? And so I think it got to the point where it was like, if we're adding something in, what can we take out? And so, and what are they really retaining from these three hour labs where we have 75 techniques that we're being taught and they're not, you know, getting a deeper level of understanding for that material. So 
um, I really started just, you know, finding ways to push something in and swap something out. So it wasn't an immediate like removal of stuff. It was like a swapping out of things. It didn't happen overnight. It was a very slow um, like progression of, of ideas and treatment techniques that we were reversing through our curriculum. Mm -hmm. And were you doing this alongside colleagues? Yeah. So I think, um, I, I would probably say like, I was like the, you know, the first person starting the, the change, but then as we would have team meetings, cause I'm lucky to work with a group of other neuro faculty, um, that we would, you know, I would try to make suggestions for change and try to find the people that were on board with me and, um, work with them to make some changes. So, my, I would say my first starting, like the way I first started changes were the changes that I was specifically involved in. This was my lecture. This is my lab. This is how I'm going to teach it. But mm -hmm. then as I realized that we needed to kind of get rid of some material that somebody else owned, um, I would try to push my way and nudge the evidence towards them and talk to them about ways we could modify the lab or the lecture to get the more contemporary practices in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And were people open to, to that? So I think the first thing I did was found somebody who was open. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like the, the, the starting stone as I, once I found someone that was open and was listening and wanted to talk about the evidence, um, then it kind of, we kind of like worked together to try to make changes within the team. So, um, yeah, I think that that finding that like initial first partner really helped make major changes in the curriculum. Yeah, I think one of the important things to recognize, too, is like, even though sometimes our thinking can change kind of quickly, putting it into practice in a like effective and thoughtful way is harder to do, you know, or once you decide to change something. You can't, you know, it's just not going to happen overnight, even though you kind of wish it would. Yeah, I think even in my clinical practice, right, I try hard to not give people rest breaks and providing external cues versus internal cues. And I think, you know, and I'm, I'm doing it with my own practice and then I'm having students watch me practice and I'm trying to be a role model to them. So um, I'm trying to say to them, I'm working through this, my own personal changes and please hold me accountable and I'm going to hold you accountable too. So they can see that, you know, what we're taught at school does change and we need to be like ready and motivated to change over time and not kind of just shut out and be happy with the way that everything is because we have so much more evidence. I always joke that my motor control book when I was in PT school was called um, the theory of motor control. And now it's like evidence-based principles and knowledge translation of motor control. So it's like now these theories have been proven and there's evidence behind all the stuff that we were teaching and things have shifted in the book and changed. And so um, I just try to give my own personal examples of how I've grown over time. So hopefully the students will see um, that we're, you should be continuing to grow as a profession, a professional. Right. Yeah. I think there is like, also like a fundamental shift in that, like once you kind of take on the evidence-based 
approach, the recognition that it's going to change, right? The evidence is going to continue to progress. And, and also, you know, there's so much now that is out there and coming out that I think things like the CPGs can be really helpful because then as a clinician, you don't have to try to sort through all of that information, but then the CPGs can also be overwhelming, right? So kind of trying to find your way through that. And, and so um, the Academy creating tools that are, that help with the CPGs, I think is really helpful. And it's kind of like, I've used those in my clinical practice a lot more than reading the CPG, you know, the things a bear, they're always like super long and, yeah. and they have to be like, you need all that stuff there, but it's so, it's, it's so nice to kind of have those kinds, those kinds of tools and some of the tools that we're creating um, are that our task force is creating. Yeah. The resources that are provided from AMPT are just, you know, so valuable and so useful. So just taking the time to read through them and, you know, even one CPG at a time, right? Like, what am I not doing here that I could make a change? And so I think um, for me, it was like the corset, then locomotor. And now I've been like diving more into Parkinson. So I think that like, for me, it's not like I just flip a switch. It's like, I have to keep going deeper and deeper. And, and then once I get a little bit deeper, I'm then making curricular changes based on the information that is in the CPGs. And I, and I spend time with the students, like searching stuff out, showing them how to use the resources. Cause I'm hopeful that they're going to be, you know, users in the future and recognize the importance of, of the evidence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point too, to kind of recognize that as clinicians, we're taking things on kind of you know, one at a time or making one small change, which really over time, those small changes add up to make a big difference. They do. The The students, yeah, even my my own changes have added up. And then I can, still, I can still find myself like reverting back to, are you tired? Do you need a rest break? Well, I'm thinking about also trying to work them at moderate intensity. And so I think um, giving myself a little bit of like grace in it too. And it's not going to happen overnight. So same for the curricular changes, right? Like we're working on things. We're constantly making better things better and, um, giving grace to try to make these good changes towards use, use of evidence. Right. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, like you're talking about having students in the clinic with you observing, do you ever, uh, get feedback from students about what they see in the clinic that's different than what you're teaching or, um, you know, where they feel like clinicians that they're seeing aren't really doing things the way that they're being taught? I would say yes. Um, all the time we're getting feedback about, um, kind of what we're talking, what we're talking about. I would say the clinicians have been open to have the students do in-services on the different CPGs. Um, so I think that there's like a slow movement forward when the students are bringing the evidence to them. So I think that's a really nice piece that's that's coming forward out of that is that there's some in-services that are happening. And then if their CI is like receptive to let's try this, 
um, I, I always enjoy that conversation as well. And we try to do like practice in the, like in the classroom, you know, how to have some of these conversations with their CIs about use of best evidence and can I try this? And I also, also like welcome the CIs to reach out to me and say, we don't know anything about this because it's hard as a practicing clinician to keep up with everything. And so we're in academia, we get the time to dive in deeper. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm happy to go do in services or provide information to the CIs as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we don't do enough of is that bridge that gap between academia and the clinical environment and for us in academia to hear feedback, right? So we were not in the clinic full time all the time, right? And so um, some of the things that we think would just be easy to do when we were full time in the clinic for me 12 years ago may not be the case anymore. Insurance has changed, getting equipment is changing, you know? So that's, it's, I've, I've find value going back in the clinic and learning and seeing what's happening all the time, because there's definitely information that's there that is there that I don't recognize and realize. So I think it is a two-way street. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Are you still making curricular changes? I mean, I know you said you're kind of always right updating, but do you feel like there's still fundamental things that need to change in your curriculum? Yeah, I think it's we're we're a work in progress. Um, I was I was teasing my colleague the other day that I'm a nudge, and so there's a two more or three more things that I want to nudge out and replace it with kind of new evidence. And so I have, you know, a half a lab that I would like to really just eliminate completely. And we've gotten rid of a lot, right? So I have to just be very excited on the successes of getting rid of an upper extremity PNF lab, and now we have a um, high intensity gate training lab and a variable balance lab that we didn't have before because we've gotten rid of um, some of the pre-gate f- like focused labs. As the director of practice, people are consistently reaching out to me and saying, if I remove some of the PNF principles, it's not taught in ortho. And so they get a little bit of, um, of like pushback from the ortho clinicians. And so um, about, you know, stretching and strengthening techniques, like rhythmic stabilization of the shoulder for a person who has a shoulder replacement or a shoulder, um, pathology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that is a real dilemma that people are, are seeing because there is more of an impairment focus in, in, um, ortho world. Right. And so for sure. the, the conversation of transitioning it out or um, transitioning over to ortho when they're teaching the strengthening and stretching, can can that fit there? Or do they keep it in the neural curriculum and make it very specific to just the stretching and strengthening that they're probably gonna have in ortho? So it's, it's interesting conversations to have and problem solve and work through with people. To me, it sounds unfair to make you teach something that only supports their curriculum, like. Why wouldn't they teach it? Right. I, I agree. I push it over to ortho because that's an impairment focused thing. And we know, you know, strengthening strengthens. So, or stretching actually improves range of motion. So does it, does 
it, but in neuro, we're focused on, on activity level, right? We're focused on function. We're not necessarily focused on the strengthening or range of motion that's happening in ortho. So yeah, should it fit there? Can it fit there? Um, yeah. And it's a curricular conversation. As you're moving forward through your curricular changes, um, do you feel like it's getting easier to kind of bring those things in, or I could also see the situation where, you know, like you were kind of saying, you can only put so much in, right? There's there's certain things you probably need to have in there. Um, we, you know, one of the big things we talk about is de-implementation, which is a lot of what you're talking about, taking things out. We've gotten some feedback that People don't like the term de-implementation because it has a negative connotation, but I've, it's really flipped in my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm like, this is a science, like de-implementation, there's de-implementation science and learn, you know, we need to do it. Like we can't, you can't just keep shoving things in the toolbox or whatever it is, you know? Right. I totally agree. We can't keep shoving more stuff in, right? It's like, got to give, we have got to find a way to take something out. There's something that was a theoretical that didn't get proven and that we need to remove. And so um, I, I teach cardio palm stuff too. And I think that um, I, some of the things that are in that I'm like, we teach this technique, but there's no evidence behind it, but it's clearly written in the book. And so I, every single year that I have some lab where we're looking at uh, segmental breathing or something kind of different, I go back and I look, is there anything here that says that this is helpful for the patient? And, and it's so interesting that we hold on to these things that just don't have any, any evidence behind them. Um, so it's, it's everywhere, right? So, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think so. And, you know, I think that like our medical colleagues are, are a little bit ahead in terms of being evidence-based and really changing practice, um, as evidence comes out and standardizing their practice, because, you know, you go to two different cardiologists, you don't necessarily want two completely different plans of care. And you want your cardiologist to t talk about the literature, right? Here are your options. Here's what the literature says. Here's what you look like. You know, option A would look like this with based on the evidence, but you also kind of fit here. This is option B, right? Are we having those conversations, right? We're, we have our doctors of physical therapy. We are doctors of physical therapy. Are we having those conversations with the patients that, you know, the evidence says you should be doing this. Here's your choice. You know, what do you want to do? So giving like that shared decision-making, but educating the patients that this is what, this is what the evidence says. And I don't know if we're doing those things like we should. So as director of practice, um, are you seeing and hearing about changes in practice, like on a larger level out there? It's a great question. Um, I would say yes. So what um, some of the groups have been doing is, um, like the KT groups that are associated with CPGs have been trying, have been doing surveys. I'm sure that you've been involved in some of the surveys, right? So they're looking to see when the CPG came out, what did you know about it? What were you doing for it? You know, like that th match with the recommendations. And then, you know, three years after their group is done, they're doing a post survey. So we're seeing that there are changes. Um, 
I would say like anecdotally all the time, I'm hearing people, I'm getting emails of people reaching out. How do I do this? Um, I did this. This is what happened. What do I do next? So I think um, we're, we're looking at it. Like the work groups are looking at it. The KT work groups, you guys are looking at it, right? You're looking to see if what we're doing really does have an influence or impact. And I would say from like the AMPT side, like just website analytics of, it's hard to measure like change from website analytics, but the number of hits that we're getting from all the KT resources that we're providing is, it's amazing to see the changes with um, even the edge group stuff. The highest website hits that we have on AMPT are the CPGs, um, the KT resources, the edge documents, right? Those are the things that clinicians are looking for. Um, and, and we hope that means, right? We're not, there's not a direct, but we hope that means that they're, they're changing their practice because they're accessing those resources. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is something that I've struggled with, with teaching, you know, both kind of in a classroom setting and having students in the clinic is like, what is truly entry level? And I would think that, that that's another place where some de-implementation, you know, might be good because are you going beyond entry level? And I know like with vestibular, sometimes that conversation comes up. So is that something that you guys have tackled as a faculty group? I mean, I think that what we try to do is use the resources the best we can that are done by different academies or ANPT or APTA um, to see what they say. And then look a little bit at the um, resources that are created for the students to take the test, right? Or And even the NPTE resources. So we kind of try, try to triangulate the best we can, um, kind of those three things. Like what is NPTE? like the test outline look like? What um, what do the textbooks look like? What is, you know, wh where are we deviating so much from the textbook that's not even, you know, because we've just become so passionate about vestibular or um, whatever the topic is, right? You as a clinician, you just love something. And so you go super deep in it sometimes and you have to kind of back yourself out um, because wait, did I just go way too deep in this information? So I think, it's good to do an assessment to look at the areas where maybe it is too deep and, and you're kind of in the weeds and um, it's like a passion of yours, but not necessarily evident, not necessarily entry level. So looking at the different resources that exist out there um, and asking yourself, like, do I have seven lectures on this? Like why, you know, so trying to make sure that you're in check with yourself and using your colleagues to, to to do that as well so I think I think it's hard though there's a hard balance right when you're when you're really passionate about some some material um, mm -hmm. you want you want to talk about it more <laughs> yeah yeah for sure <laughs> all right well Wendy I want to thank you so much for joining us and kind of sharing your story and your journey and I know a lot of educators have kind of been asking about you know how do we change the curriculum and you know, I think people are feeling like it has to happen overnight, but recognizing that the best change is probably a slow change, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.